Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, a podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this is an emergency podcast, which is looking at the events that have transpired in Russia over this weekend. We are recording on the afternoon of Sunday, the 25th of June, and uh, we're trying to make sense of a, of a fast-moving story. So we're dealing with imperfect information, and maybe things will happen before other people listen to the podcast. But the last couple of days, I think, are quite likely to go down in, in Russian history. What started on Saturday as an armed rebellion within Russia by Evgeny Prigozhin's Wagner forces has ended in something of a whimper, with Putin's former caterer turned warlord agreeing to leave for Belarus in exchange for some ambiguous concessions from the Kremlin. What does this mean for Putin's domestic reputation, his future survival? How will Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive be affected? How is Europe reacting to these events? And have they even ended? Or is this just the beginning of a much longer and more complicated story? Much of these questions are, are still unclear, but today we're going to try and unpack as many of them as we can. And we have an all-star cast joining us from all sorts of different places. On the weekend, sitting uh, in Paris, we have Marie Dumoulin. Um, we From Poland, I think, we have Pavel Slunkin. Kadri Leek is joining us from Estonia. And Kirill Shamiev um, is joining from Vienna Airport. Marie uh, is the head of ECFR's Wider Europe program. Kadri is a senior policy fellow and Russia expert. Pavel is a visiting fellow and an expert on Belarus. And Kirill is a visiting fellow and an expert on Russia's civil military relations and domestic policy and uh, politics and policymaking. So um, thank you very much to all of you for joining at short notice. Um, why don't we start by talking about what actually happened? This feud between Russia's military leadership and Prigozhin has been simmering for a long time, but it escalated into this very dramatic confrontation on, on Saturday. Um, Kirill, you've been following it minute by minute for the last period of time and working for a very long time on, on Russia's civil military relations. Can you set the scene for us and, and tell us about who Prigozhin is, um, why relations between him and the, the military were so tense and, and what actually triggered this latest crisis? Um, yes, sure. Thanks for joining me on. And, uh, well, maybe I'll start with a brief discussion about Prigozhin himself. He is, uh, um, well, he is he, he has been Putin's man since the 90s. He's a former Soviet convict. He spent around 10 years in the Soviet prison for, for, for theft. In the 90s, he was engaged in the catering business. And you know the catering business in the in, in, in earlier in, in the 1990s is basically like a money laundering machine, and this is when Vladimir Putin was also in the city administration of St. Petersburg. This is when they met, and uh, since early 2000s, when Putin came back to power, came came to power, Prigozhin was around him. There are these famous pictures of Putin, President Bush, and Prigozhin behind behind their backs, like serving wine. And um, well, since 2014. Um, private military company Wagner uh, started to be engaged in Ukraine, especially in eastern Ukraine. 
um, uh, there are some units already deployed back in uh, back well after Maidan when Russia Russia started the rebellion in Eastern Ukraine and next Crimea. And uh, a few years later, Prigozhin went public, and basically everyone realized that he was. Well, there were some investigative reports already saying that he he was he, he has he became he became the owner of the private military company Wagner, but then he went public basically saying that yeah, it's him. He's not only he's not only the owner of the uh, of the Wagner company, but also he has a media empire, Telegram channels, um, websites, uh, social media groups. Uh, on all this kind of uh, media influence, and uh, in the invasion, his uh, troops uh, became more active. Uh, pr- pretty much a month later, m- a month after the full-scale invasion started, um, and they were very, very handy in the operational sense. Especially, they, well, everyone uh, it, they became really well known uh, due to the uh, offensive actions in Bakhmut. So this is uh, pretty much it. If I if I have to be short. But um, later, yeah, and when the crisis with the Russian Ministry of Defense started, um, it's uh, in the second half of uh, last year, uh, basically Prigozhin accused the Russian Ministry of Defense for um, for not providing weapons and equipment to, to Wagner forces, for undermining their effort in Bakhmut, and that escalated, uh, well, basically to May. Uh, this year, when Prigozhin started accusing directly the, uh, the leadership of the Russian Ministry of Defense for treason, it all ended up in his armed rebellion against the Russian government. Great. Thank you very much, Kirill. Um, and so, um, obviously, that's, that's great background. Um, Marie, can, can you talk a bit about um, what the relations between uh, the official army and these different... Um, private militaries that have developed over the last few years have been because Prigozhin is the the most famous but there are various other um different uh private armies that have developed particularly um people like um uh, uh you know um Kadyrov in Chechnya but also some of the big companies uh, like Gazprom have have, um, have often had uh, their own uh, security operations. Well, the first thing to know is that private military companies are not supposed to exist in Russia. There is no legal status for them, and they are supposed to be illegal. Uh, Wagner is pretty much the first of its kind, um, and it was set up originally in a sort of close cooperation, but tacit cooperation with the GRU. At, at least it's um, it's uh, reputed to be linked to the GRU. And it was an instrument of uh, plausibly deniable action uh, beyond Russia's borders, more or less. Um, now, over the last um, few months and with the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, you've seen a multiplication of similar structures, um, some of them set up by big companies like Gazprom, some of them set up directly by the Ministry of Defense. Um, it's a sort of um, proxies that are helping recruit um, with different criteria, give um, different benefits and different salaries. Um, but the, the Wagner was a 
pretty much um, a single case also because of its presence um, on various theatres abroad in Africa, in Syria, in Libya, and um, at some point it was also present in Venezuela. It, it interfered, or it was one of the tools for interference in the US elections back in 2016. So it has a variety of um, activities that, to my knowledge, none of the other private military companies have. Um, Kadyrov's um, army is a bit different uh, because it's formally part of the National Guard, so it's uh, it's part of the state structures, uh, but it's more or less his own people um, in a separate unit of the National Guard. And how, why were these different things being used? Because Putin seemed to be playing them off against each other and you also using them alongside in a, in a way that seems to generate quite a lot of tension, the official military in, in a lot of the, the different theatres in which he's, he was engaged. Well, um, having private companies was quite handy when uh, Russia was using them abroad um, in places like Central African Republic or Mali. Um, they could engage in these countries while saying we are not there. Uh, the irony is that um, they used to say, the, the Russian government used to say it's a private company, the Russian state doesn't have anything to do with them. Um, and now this message to, seems to have been real. Um, the events of the last days show that the Russian government actually doesn't completely control Wagner, uh, which is a, yeah, a bit of an irony. So Kadri, um, what was it that actually precipitated this this chain of events. So um, we heard from Kirill about some of the kind of long-standing tensions and the different things which were going on between Prigozhin and the and the army. But um, what actually led him to start moving his troops into Russia to take over Rostov-on-Don and then start a march towards Moscow? That has been somewhat of a puzzle to me. I think one thing that seems to be quite clear was that Prigozhin was extremely unhappy with the decision or demand uh, that his Wagner mercenaries sign contract with Russian Ministry of Defense, essentially making them subordinate uh, to Ministry of Defense. Um, and that probably was a trigger. What was he counting on remains a bit unclear to me. I was wondering if that is real desperation or huge self-confidence, or probably both, but in, 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 in which combination. Um, from Moscow, I have heard a version that he feared that basically Russian official army will finish off Wagner. They will take it over, or if they don't manage that, then they could easily just bomb it as apparently, or allegedly at least, they had done on a couple of occasions and mined exit routes for Wagner people from Bakhmut, etc. Uh, so it might have been a move of, of desperation. At the same time, uh, there must have been also some self-confidence involved. Either he really hoped that army will side with him and, and regime will fall, 
uh, or alternatively, at least he must have expected that rebellion ends with a deal uh, as it did. But how could he know it? Did he have any preliminary agreements with anyone? I do not know. So we're going to go to Pavel, who follows Belarus very closely on the details of this deal in a, in a few minutes. But before we do that, Kirill, you um, spend a lot of time talking to people who, who look at civil military relations. I mean, what do you think... Um, uh the plan was do you you know do you um did you hear the same things that 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 Kadri heard was this a coup was this an attempt to to try and extract a price was he actually trying to overthrow putin or was he merely trying to to push back against the the military yeah well thanks uh, everything i know about russian military and what uh, lots of people research about russian civil military relations basically tell us that the russian military is strictly apolitical and they not only um they not only dislike being involved in politics as an active organ or like organizational force but also they have a military culture of non-involvement in political civilian political affairs so if we think about if one of our hypotheses is that Prigozhin was counting on the military to to kind of side side with him and I don't know uh, conduct an operation against Moscow. Probably it was, if it's true, it was a huge miscalculation from his side. Immediately after the first news appeared that he started uh, moving his forces into into Russia's territory, uh, two two leading generals, the deputy minister of defense and uh, deputy head of the main directorate of the general staff, basically the deputy head of the military intelligence. Uh, immediately appeared with videos asking Prigozhin to uh, kind of step back and stop his, uh, stop basically stop uh, his treason. Um, so, and what then Wagner forces occupied the uh, the headquarters of the south su- southern military district in uh, Rostov. So, and another aspect can be why why actually Prigozhin decided to act is his long-standing conflict with the Ministry of Defense. And if we try to think about how the Russian military probably perceived Prigozhin is that he was a pain in the neck for them due to the chain of command. He was It's a relatively new phenomenon for the Russian military that they, they have such a mass-scale, independent, autonomous fighting force, uh, informally organized, informally connected to the political leadership. And for the Russian military with a long-standing tradition and history, they were, they were like aliens, uh, unsubordinate, uncoordinated, problems with coordination and cohesion. And obviously, all military generals, senior military military officers, were perceiving them as um, as as like an alien, uh, foreign foreign uh, forces supporting Vladimir Putin. And uh, this was probably why Troidu and uh, Gerasimov and other senior generals were perceiving them as they have to be they had to be integrated in the ministry in the official Ministry of Defense chain of command. Just because it's like a kegel of explosives, as actually it happened in the end uh, when the Russians started the rebellion. So, what what was it that led him to turn back? Because we saw these absolutely incredible, unthinkable images of um, him taking over uh, in Rostov and then moving quite close towards Moscow, and Moscow being turned into a kind of fortress. What was it that that made him turn back? I would say that this is the core thing that we still don't know, because it all looked surprising when you are 
20, 200 kilometers from Moscow and being almost reaching your goal, uh, challenging uh, the authorities, challenging Putin, uh, risking everything you have, and then retreating. And we still don't know what they promised to Prigozhin and why he accepted. So what was the reason behind? Uh, and I think that without this piece of the puzzle, we can't really understand and we should still see what will be happening. Because the main points of uh, the agreement that they w- was uh, stated by Peskov is that Prigozhin goes to Belarus, that the criminal's case against him is closed, that the Wagner forces who didn't support Prigozhin, they can join Ministry of Defense of Russia if they want. The rest uh, of, the, of the group who participated in the rebellion, they... Uh, came back to the uh, field camps in Russia or in Ukraine, still unknown, and they uh, the criminal cases against them won't be open. And that's all. Uh, so they say that the agreement was uh, mediated by Lukashenko. And for me, uh, it's still unclear what real role they really play. What was, was it the mediator role or this was a more technical role when Putin told him what to do and he just agreed then. Um, from what I know, the, the main uh, role played by the Belarusian side was uh, done by the Security Council. They uh, posted first the position of Belarus, which uh, didn't support any of the sides. Neither Putin nor Prigozhin, they just condemned what is happening, saying that the civil war is and, and destabilization is not the way, is something very negative to the country and that they should stop. And this hints me that they were really uh, playing something. So they didn't want to lose their opportunity to talk to both of the sides. The first call Putin did yesterday was to Lukashenko. Uh, and only after this, he talked to Takayev, he talked to Erdogan, he talked to Mirziyoyev and, and, other, and other foreign leaders. Uh, the National Security Council of Belarus is headed by uh, a Russian-born officer, Alexander Wolfovich. And I can guess that he also played this role that he could potentially know uh, high-position officials in Russia maybe his counterpart, and also some of the people on the Wagner side. Because despite of what Peskov is saying, that Lukashenko said that he knows Prigozhin for more than 20 years, I don't really trust this news, because in the last years, we haven't seen much uh, of info about their communication. They haven't met each other, or at least publicly. Uh, We only know that uh, Wagner's group gifted to Lukashenko a sledgehammer, and Lukashenko exhibits, proudly exhibits the sledgehammer in his palace and also gives the sledgehammer to his propagandists. Uh, but at the same time, I haven't found any proofs that they really know each other for a long time. And why, why do you think that Putin wanted, would have wanted to get Lukashenko as the, uh, as the broker? I think that the main idea is that Prigozhin attacked the second uh, official in now in the Russian system in a, of the country that is in war, the defense minister. And when you are attacking the second guy, then obviously you wouldn't agree to talk to others who are uh, lower uh, in the hierarchy. So I think that Prigozhin wanted to talk to Putin because his demands 
where uh, on Putin, he wanted Putin to fire Gerasimov and, and Shoigu. And Putin just didn't want to, because Putin is the president. He sees him as a Tsar of Russia. So why would he talk to a traitor? And he called, even without uh, pronouncing his name in the video uh, statement, he called Prigozhin a traitor. So why would you talk to him? And at the same time, Prigozhin didn't want to talk to any other subordinates of Putin. He wanted to talk to the high-level officials. And this is, I think, how they found uh, Lukashenko. He's a president, even though uh, illegitimate. But for Prigozhin, uh, he's, I think, known as a very tough person who supports Wagner, who supports a very brutal ways of uh, ruling the country and also the war. Uh, and he's head of state, which makes... Uh, Prigozhin, like artificially bringing him much upper on this uh, hierarchy ladder. So um, Lukashenko just was a comfortable person whom Putin can trust. And Putin also has a lot of control over Lukashenko, uh, institutional control over Belarus, and also the control over his political stability in, in, in Belarus. So both of the sides could trust him. And this is the reason why he played this role, I think. Great. Thanks a lot, Pavel. Um, so let's, we've still got a lot of questions to, to answer. I want to end by kind of looking at some of the big picture questions for, for Putin and uh, his kind of long-term uh, prospects and, and what it means in Ukraine. Um, but before we do that, can we maybe just look at some of these sort of technical questions? Um, Pavel just told us about the main bits of the deal. Um uh, but w what do we think is going to happen to all of these um, soldiers, to all the Wagner Group um, soldiers now? Um, are they uh, going to um, uh, do what, uh, I mean, you know, how many are they? Where are they? Um, what do, What is it going to mean for, for the different theatres in which they're fighting, Kirill? Yeah, this is another question that we probably need to wait to answer correctly because we don't have much like hard data and evidence. But officially, they were offered uh, pardon for their actions. But I really wonder what exactly would happen to the people who engage, for example, Russian Air Force, and they uh, shut down several helicopters and even an airplane, a fixed-wing fixed aircraft. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, based on all Russian laws, they're uh, uh, real criminals. But yeah, considering how the rule of law functions in Russia, it's up to the president to decide what, what to do with them. Another aspect is their future operational purpose. Probably some of them would still be integrated in the Russian Ministry of Defense. But also, we, uh, there is some other areas for operation where Wagner forces have been engaged. It's in Africa, Central African Republic, Mali, also Syria, and uh, some other places in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the global south. So I guess, especially th those officers with a lot of uh, experience, those senior level command of Wagner forces, if uh, not prison, they would be basically sent to to, to those faraway regions to continue doing their shady business uh, on, on, on behalf of Wagner troops and basically uh, continuing their plausible deniability and acting on behalf of the Russian state. But we'll see, probably we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll have more data in, in, in the coming days. And what are the long-term prospects of, of Shoigu and Gerasimov? That's, uh, that's another tricky question because we haven't heard of them since uh, they started the rebellion. And uh, uh, we also haven't heard any words from Putin or other senior officials about their future. 
um, this I would I can only speculate because obviously this uh, the the one of the one of some people Prigozhin and and uh, sorry Shrego and Gerasimov are uh, partially responsible for Prigozhin's uprising because they didn't manage to settle their conflict peacefully. But if I ju judging by Putin's history, probably. Uh, if you really manage to settle it down uh, peacefully and uh, Prigozhin will go away, that's not in Putin's style to uh, to uh, to oust people based on well some kind of outsider's demands. Uh, uh, based on our experience, he will he will probably keep them, but then they'll have to go or reappointed to some other probably non-military positions. And what does it mean for Ukraine? Uh, uh, well, to be honest, uh, I expected that when the uh, uprising started, that Ukraine would start conducting an, uh, um, a really serious uh, counter-offensive actions uh, on, on, uh, along the front lines. But as far as you know, it didn't happen. Also, what the evidence we have right now that the Russian front line, uh, well, basically uh, remained and the Russian forces were doing as as, 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 as before. And moreover, Wagner even permitted uh, some parts of the Russian Air Force, which Air Force they basically occupied to continue strikes against Ukrainian targets. Uh, some telegram channels even claimed that they, um, well, they basically forced the Russian Air Force to have at least one Wagner person in the aircraft doing, well, conducting strikes against Ukrainian targets. Uh, well, there is no uh, like hard proof for that, but this is what the Telegram channels say. And well, and the airports they occupied are apparently now well, they they, they left them and, uh, and actually even leaving some armaments behind in, in the airfields. Okay, um, so Marie, what do you think the the main effects of this are going to be on Putin's uh, domestic reputation? I mean, he's somebody who has had an incredible level of control over everything that was that was happening in Russian politics for the last quarter of a century. How does that survive the chaos of the last few days? Well, if I may start with the effect on Prigozhin, I think uh, what we are going to see is the end of the Prigozhin phenomenon as we knew it, because his business model relied very much on using state resources for airlifting his troops, etc. That's not going to be possible. And then the offer he made to foreign leaders like Tuadera or the Mali, Malian leadership, etc., was helping them uh, withstand possible attempts by paramilitary groups to march on their capital cities and seize power. I don't see how he's going to be able to offer that uh, now that he's done what he's done. So um, I expect the Wagner model to um, change quite a lot. Now, if we look at Putin's authority, um, formally, his power has not been um, really threatened, um, but his authority was challenged and was challenged in a very radical and um, an explicit way. It's not the first time his authority is challenged. And in many ways, I find that uh, Prigozhin's uh, attempt reminds um, what Navalny tried to do um, back in 2020 when he came back to Russia after having been poisoned. Uh, his main message was, I'm I also can set the agenda. Putin is not the only one to set the agenda here. Now, Navalny did this in a very 
political and very legalistic way. And the, I, I'm afraid that the message that people will get from Prigozhin's attempt to challenge Putin's authority uh, with the same message, I'm, put, I'm setting the agenda, but I'm setting the agenda in a very violent way. Um, and so the, the idea that Putin uh, can make concessions when he's threatened by violent uh, means um, may well um, announce further challenges that will be even more radical, I'm afraid. And Kadri, you've been looking for a long time at, um, at the Russian debate on um, on the war. And one of the striking thing about Prigozhin's comments was, um, uh, that, you know, how critical he was, uh, not just about the way the war is being waged, but the whole way that it started. Will that have any effect on on public opinion for the, uh, and public support for the war in in Russia? I do not think so. Um, I mean, I, I assume that people who follow Prigozhin, um, they probably know that anyway. Uh, hard for me to say how how much his message might resonate among the uh, military who have been following him. But of course, it is clear that among the elites, the understanding that the war is not going well and the leadership does not know where it's headed and it is creating more and more dangers uh, on the way, I think that is only increasing either alarmism or otherwise sort of cynical uh, apathy. I noticed that some people in Moscow... Um, sort of observe, adopted a position of of just an out, outside observer of an absurd comedy. Uh, they don't try to even rationalize it anymore. They just are onlookers. Uh, and that, that self-positioning is surprisingly widespread, which might mean that Putin's political life is not in immediate danger, uh, but it also means that things are still not good. So we're running out of time here, but um, lots of people have been writing articles saying that, that the coup might be over, but this could be the beginning of the end for Putin, that Prigozhin's mutiny is the beginning of the end. Um, maybe I can just ask all of you to answer that question with a single word, yes or no? Is this the beginning of the end for, for Putin? Um, Kirill, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, answering this question, probably I would remind that it's important to distinguish the uh, the, uh, the safety of the regime and the safety of the Russian state. And that here we see a clear division. Uh, in terms of this state, it was surprising to see this apathy and a very slow reaction to the crisis. Uh, while the regime was actively seek, uh, actively looking for solutions in some ways, basically to prevent uh, to prevent uh, the, the uh, bloodshed, and uh, well, as as uh, Pavel said, uh, the Russian the Russian leadership and their connection with Putin proved to be quite handy here. In terms of support for for the regime, 
Well, yeah, I agree that it's indeed, uh, it's uh, again, even in domestic front, uh, Putin is, uh, the situation is going out of control. Uh, one of the key allies of Vladimir Putin basically went rogue and started the rebellion. And this looks really bad for everyone in Russia who uh, who, who believed that Putin had some kind of uh, plan to, not uh, maybe not to conquer Ukraine, but at least to end this war more or less uh, uh, neutrally to the Russian state. And another aspect is... Uh, uh, okay, why don't you finish your sentence, but maybe we could do the others much quicker. Yeah, go on. Uh, oh, uh, sure. And the other aspect is uh, basically how they handle protests and how they handle the rebellion. It turned out that if you should shut down, shoot down uh, seven airplanes and you can basically go uh, peacefully and you don't go to prison. But if you go to the square with a, with a poster, like with a pro-LGBT, for example, poster, you'll go to prison for 10 years. And this is a huge difference. And it's very interesting how it would play out further. Okay. Um, if the other if, if the other people can answer this much more quickly, Marie, is this the beginning of the end or not? I think the end already started uh, at least in February last year, uh, but we don't know when it will come ultimately. Okay, um, Pavel. Yeah, I think that uh, yesterday we saw a proof of that Russian system is much weaker than we used to think it is, and that's why my answer would be the quote of Churchill. Now, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning of Putin's era. Okay. And the last word to you, Kadri. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I essentially agree with uh, Marie. I, I think the end started in February last year. That is when Putin lost the opportunity to change the regime in an evolutionary manner. Now it was clear that it will end with some big hiccups were were waiting. Uh, so that's just another milestone on, on that road. How long it still will be, I also do not know. Okay, so um, it's been a great discussion, an emergency discussion. Thanks to all of you for, um, for joining us from all the different places that you've been. Apologies to the listeners if the sound quality wasn't always great. It's what... Uh, happens even more so than usual when we have to do, do things um, in emergency circumstances. But um, hopefully you found the discussion as interesting as I have. Uh, colleagues have been writing about the uh, events on uh, Twitter and uh, and we'll be writing more on our website. So we'll put links up to uh, the publications there on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Marie Dumoulin, Kadri Leek, Pavel Slunkin and Kirill Shamiev, it's goodbye. The researcher of the podcast was Anand Sundar and our editor is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.